0: Everybody, they couldn't be found I'm gone and they don't know my name No lack, no speech, no Hall of Fame A-Rod, Zito, Posada, Tejada, Johan, Manny, Maddox, Messina Who's the one that made the way with blood? Go say my name, it's from Cut Blood Hello and welcome to episode 1729 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg.
1: Hello. You a big Olympics person? I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> I I typically find myself... Watching the Olympics, and I have found myself not really watching at all. This this go, this games, these games. Mm-hmm. This yeah, game?
0: these games. Let's go with that.
1: These games. I am come to understand that um, Team USA baseball is doing quite well. Yes. So that's cool. Yeah. And Tess Cheruskin, who does some prospect work for us at Fangraphs, has been paying close attention to the prospects who are playing in these games, uh, both for Team USA and and for the other teams. And so I have enjoyed her coverage of it. But I have watched very little. I saw those. Mm-hmm. I saw those little wee skateboarders doing stuff. They seem like <laughs> great gals, But otherwise, no. I have not been as super engaged with. With the games, even though I just spent a minute talking about the ways in which I have been. So,
0: yeah, no, neither have I. And I'm not normally, I could say it's because of COVID concerns or because of the time zone differences or because it's hard to find what channel anything is on. But realistically, I'm just never a big Olympics person. It's just not my thing. I totally understand why it is some people's thing. Yeah. But with me, I guess it's just that I have a hard time convincing myself to care about events that I pay zero attention to between Olympics. And I get why it's fun to just say, hey, I'm going to pay attention to this for a couple weeks. And you have your human interest stories and you can pretend to understand what's happening. And so I get it. But I just haven't made the effort to watch. I saw some small bit of Olympics the other night when I was watching The Bachelorette, my Olympics. But other than that, nothing really. And what I saw actually after The Bachelorette was steeplechase. Which I was under the impression that that was an equestrian event, (laughs) that that was horses hopping over things. Yeah. In fact, it is also apparently a people thing. Wait, what? People were hopping (laughs) Oh, Yeah. Jesse and I were watching, like, what is happening here? Are these people pretending to be horses? But No. The steeplechase is something that humans also do, and apparently there are just puddles on the track and also hurdles, and they hop over the hurdles into the puddles, (laughs) and we were trying to puzzle what was happening here. I read the entire Wikipedia entry, which normally makes me an expert, but in this case was not enough to help me understand why there are puddles on the track. At first, I thought maybe it rained, but I think it's some sort of historical homage or something. Anyway, very strange, but there are people who train very hard for these things and are the best in the world at what they do and you can kind of get caught up in people really, really trying hard to win something, even if you don't understand what is happening on the screen. It does kind of remind you that all sports are sort of arbitrary. We totally make them up and we decide that they're important and someone who's a big fan of steeplechase with humans could probably tune into baseball and say, why in the world are they trying to hit the ball and run around the bases? It makes no sense. It's just that someone decided that that would be fun and then other people decided that it would be fun to watch those people do that and so now we have a 150 200 year tradition of watching baseball but all of this is pretty arbitrary really so steeplechase just as valid a pursuit as baseball
1: Wow. And I'm I'm given to understand that they did not misplace their horses and then just like so. ha- had to run the steeplechase course.
0: Not as far as I know.
1: Wow. We're going to get
0: emails probably from the, the <laughs> steeplechase diehards out there and I welcome them. Or maybe I don't. I don't know if I want to know more. It was sort of a, a special little glimpse that I got of yeah. this thing that I did not know existed. but. I'm not normally an Olympics person. I haven't been watching a ton of Olympics, but I think I will watch an Olympic this week because, as you noted, the gold medal game between the USA and Japan in baseball is coming up on Saturday. I forget which country it will be Saturday, but I'll figure that out between now and then because... They had a really good matchup earlier this week, and Masahiro Tanaka pitched for Japan, and they just eked out a win, but it was a nail-biter, and Tanaka will be back again to pitch this game. And Japan already won the gold in softball against the U.S., so the U.S. is looking for a little revenge here, and it should be fun because we've seen like long-hair, late-30s Scott Casimir, so it's a nice mix of remember-some guys and -and up-and-coming prospects, some of whom have been Pretty impressive. So, I am actually looking forward to <laughs> this one event that I will actually understand and know who is participating in.
1: Yeah, it, it is. Um, it is exciting to get to see such a an interesting blend. You know, the Olympics because of the the roster restrictions that Team USA faces, you do get this very weird snapshot of guys at the very beginnings of their careers and toward the end of their careers, and you, you know, you see guys in those phases playing on a on a major league diamond all the time it's not like this is the only time it happens but it's rare to have i think such a spread between yeah. you know their proximity to the start of their professional careers and their proximity to the end of their professional careers and so it is a cool mix of things and you know always good to see uh, Tanaka again so yeah, yeah maybe I will maybe I will catch the replay there's no shame no. in replay I'm I'm 35 yeah. I, I get to sleep it's fine <laughs> yeah no not
0: at all I was hoping and planning to watch the game earlier this week and then it was on I think maybe at 6 a.m. where I was Oh, no, thank you. by the time I tend to go to bed it's like often almost 6 a.m. anyway and then it's like am I gonna get up again to watch this thing eh, you know what I'll catch the highlights but it was a, a great game from what could tell after the fact. So, looking forward to this. And yes, even though the USA team is a bit of a mix of yeah. ages and experience levels, the Japanese team, there's a lot of star power there yeah. because NPB pauses and players can go play in the Olympics. And so, Tanaka is not even the best player or pitcher on yeah. that roster. So, they were bringing in like aces in relief against the US. And so, that sort of thing is a lot of fun. So, Good luck to everyone, really. Yeah. <laughs> it should be fun to watch. And because the US is guaranteed to win some sort of medal, Eddie Alvarez, who is on the US team, is also guaranteed to win a medal and become one of the very rare players to win medals in the Summer Olympics and also the Winter Olympics and yeah. different events. And that hasn't happened, at least for a male athlete, since the 1930s. So, that's kind of a, a cool accomplishment to go from speed skating and meddling to baseball meddling after also making the majors. So that's a nice little storyline, too.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have anything to add to that other than that's pretty cool.
0: Yep, we'll check that out and check out Steeplechase. Obviously, make sure you don't miss that it may be over for all i know <laughs>
1: and we're really sure that they didn't just like you know they they were like ah oh, the horses they got delayed and they're I'm pretty sure how Unless do they they, get... they all ask...
0: happened to fall off their horses at once but I... I don't think that's what happened
1: i have a really dumb question are you ready mm-hmm. for it how sure. do they how do they ship them to japan do they go on a boat or do they go on a plane? Can you put a horse on a plane?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, the horses are the people. I guess there were no horses, but uh,
1: but in the horse version of steeplechase, because there are equestrian events at the Olympics, even if yes. we are, are stunned to discover that this is not one of them. I I imagine that there is nothing particular to. <laughs> 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 Physiology of a horse that would prevent it from from riding in a plane, like that, it would make it yeah. unsafe for it to Other reach. Other
0: than being large,
1: but, right? But so this no. is my question: is are there? Are there cargo planes of sufficient size? <laughs> Never mind. I think the answer is certainly yes. But I like the idea of them being on like the Queen Mary two, having to yes. traverse the ocean on a on a on a luxury cruise, right?
0: launching on the sun deck, yeah, and with sun-
1: with sunglasses on, and cocktails. And they're sitting there like that's oh, so hard to hold them in our hands, but that just because we have hooves, not hands, but that just makes it satisfying <laughs> when we get to drink them.
0: We've been watching too much Bojack, possibly, but (laughs) you're asking the important questions here. here So thank you. All right. So that's my Olympics baseball and or steeplechase banter. So we have an email show for you today. We have a stat blast. We're gonna meet some major leaguers. So this should be fun, but let us start with some emails and We have some weird ones, as usual, and some hypotheticals for you all. So a couple follow-ups to recent conversations we had. This is a question from Daniel, who says, I'm listening to your dialogue on the Mets and Kumar Rocker situation when you referenced the Astros' Brady Aiken slash Alex Bregman shenanigans. This got me wondering, due to the structure of compensatory picks, Could or do teams use this to intentionally draft players that they never intend on signing for quote-unquote medical reasons? This could be used to better centralize their next wave of talent or even just to defer a pick to a class they like better. It seems like the kind of morally questionable behavior that the Bregman drafting era of Astros decision makers might be up for. And I answered this question via email, and you can tell me if your answer is any different from my answer. But what I said to Daniel is that I would not put it past teams to do this if there were some strong incentive for them to do so. Shenanigans and draft shenanigans are a a time-honored tradition in baseball and probably most sports. But I kind of doubt this would be worthwhile because the draft is so unpredictable to begin with that it would be pretty tough to tell a year in advance that there would definitely be a better player available to you in the next draft. And there's some slight cost also in that you do drop down one pick. So, Even if you had the number one pick one year, for instance, you couldn't keep the number one pick for the next year, knowing that some all-time talent is due to be eligible. So you'd have the, the number two pick the next year like the Astros did when they took Bregman, and luckily for them, he was available at number two. Plus, in baseball, it already takes so long for the typical prospect to develop after the draft that it's hard for me to imagine a situation where you would know that you wouldn't have a need on your major league roster by the time your latest draftee is ready and you're just orchestrating it so that, oh, this guy will be ready this year and that guy will be ready that year. It's all so much of a crapshoot and the developmental timelines are so unpredictable that I kind of doubt it. This seems like it would be a big galaxy brain (laughs) sort of situation to me, but you tell me if you think any different.
1: No, I tend to agree. Like you, not because I think that there is some, like, you know, (laughs) unassailable moral code that that teams ascribe to, but just because I don't think that this necessarily benefits them in a way that makes makes it worth it, both in terms of the reputational hit that they would suffer and also the lost, the sort of wasted financial opportunity, right? Because they don't get to carry over any part of their previous year's pool into the next pool. So it's not like it gives them a boost in terms of their ability to sign one of those high profile yeah. guys, right? It's not like the Mets are going to be, as we talked about, the Mets aren't going to be able to carry that million dollar plus bit of pool plus surplus that they would have had this year into their 2022 draft. So there was not really a strong financial incentive and you're already extracting so much surplus value from the picks themselves that I don't know that it really makes it worth it there either. So no, but only because like you said, the the draft is sort of unpredictable year to year. Like what if you think the top guy in the next class Like, what if he, you know, blows out, right? What if he Mm -hmm. decides to become a youth pastor? Like, you just, you know, there's (laughs) so much that you don't know about what's going to go on in the next year. So I do think that there are strategies that teams employ in years that are perceived to be sort of weak on a relative basis, right? Where they might try to cut underslot deals with some of their higher uh, picks to then use that money on later picks in the draft. And so I do think that there is... There, there are certainly strategies where teams try to maximize their value even in years that they consider to be sort of down from a talent perspective, but I don't know that this would necessarily be the approach they would take. Plus, like, you would have to... Now, this part of it maybe I is actually fairly easy to sort of execute, but you'd have to... It'd have to be a guy who didn't submit pre-draft medicals, right? Like, there, there are a lot of things that would have to line up yeah. for you to do this and have it make any kind of sense because if you... Take a guy who does submit pre-draft medicals and then you don't sign him. You don't get a compensatory pick the following year. And so that would make it fall apart. I just don't think that it lines up quite to do, which is perhaps one of the few places where teams are not able to extract just a little bit of surplus value from tiny cracks in, in the institutional facade. But I think mm-hmm. I agree with you.
0: Yeah, wouldn't shock me if someone in a draft room had discussed the sure. idea at oh, some yeah. point, but <laughs> I think there's just too much going against it, which is probably for the best. All right. Juliet says, when you guys spoke on the podcast about potential NL MVP candidates given the slew of injuries to some of the leaders, Meg mentioned it would be cool to see a guy who's been traded win an MVP award. Although the suggestion was Trey Turner, I wanted to add another name to the MVP conversation, the Brewers' Willie Adonis. Do you think he'll receive any MVP recognition? I know he hasn't accumulated the war of some of the other candidates, but his impact on the Brewers has been transformational and vaulted them into a firm spot atop the Central. When he was traded, they were 21 and 23. They've gone 44 and 21 since. In the far-fetched hypothetical that he does win MVP, how unprecedented would it be for a player traded between leagues to win the award? So we have talked about Adamus a couple times this season. We talked about him when he was traded. He was the subject of a stat blast because he had the most extreme home road splits ever and had been better on the road. And we speculated about whether that meant he would be better with the Brewers because he would be away from the trap where he said he didn't see the ball well. And thus far, that has turned out to completely be the case. And so we followed up on it and talked about how great he has been for the Brewers. And that has continued to be the case but I think it's still an extreme long shot that he could come from behind to take the support, even if, you know, Acuna's out, Tatis is out, et cetera, et cetera, and the field is opened up. It, it seems to me like there are a number of guys who probably have a better chance than Adamus as great as he's been.
1: I think that that's true. I think it's it's quite rare for major award winners to change leagues mid-season.
0: Yeah, I don't think. Anyone has uh, been traded midseason and won an MVP award. I know yeah. Rick Sutcliffe was right. traded in 1984 and won the NL Cy Young Award for the Cubs. And he was great. You know, he had like a five plus ERA when he was traded by Cleveland. And then he went 16 and one with a 2.69 ERA for the Cubs and got all 24 first place votes, I yeah. think, which uh, by war was probably not the right decision. <laughs> <laughs> but it happened. But I don't think it's happened with guys who got MVP, although there have been guys who got traded and got MVP votes, even with the Brewers, CC Sabathia in 2008. He came from Cleveland and finished 5th in Cy Young voting, 6th in MVP voting. Of course, he was the defending Cy Young Award winner at the time, and Manny Ramirez in 2008 finished 4th in NL MVP voting after he was traded from Boston to LA, and Shannon Stewart did also in 2003 after he was traded from Toronto to the Twins, which is in the same league, at least so all of his stats counted i guess it's sort of surprising that there hasn't been someone who was traded within the same league and managed to do this but i guess it's not that common for someone who is having an mvp caliber season to get dealt all those guys i just mentioned other than sutcliffe who was traded in june were traded in july though and adamas was traded in may so you'd think he'd have a head start which would make it more conceivable
1: Right. So even setting that part aside, like I do think that there seems to be there's a tendency that has persisted despite years of debate over what most valuable player actually means, where there are voters who like to give votes to players who they perceive to be, you know, instrumental in a playoff run, right? Most valuable for them is sort of inextricably tied to the team's fortunes in a way that I think the Mike Trout enthusiasts among us find frustrating and really just continues to prove the point that they should call it most outstanding player and we could Mm -hmm. stop having this stupid debate but we still have it and so i wouldn't be surprised if he receives like some maybe down-ballot consideration if he goes on a real tear and and ends up within striking distance, but it seems quite unlikely just given the gap that he would have to close and the already quite good uh, candidates ahead of him, some of whom have been traded, but as we mentioned with Turner, within within their own league. So it seems unlikely to me, but who's to say? I mean, we're Mm -hmm. to say. We don't think it's going to happen, but it's not impossible. It's just extremely unlikely.
0: Yeah. If he has the most amazing two months from here to the end of the season. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, he is uh, 16th in the National League in win probability added now and he's well down the list in war too. It's been an incredible turnaround because he had a 74 WRC plus with Tampa Bay before he was traded and he has a 146 WRC plus with Milwaukee since he was traded. And he's been worth 3.3 war this year, and 3.1 of that is with the Brewers. So it's been a heck of a trade. And as we said when we talked about it last time, always nice when you strike first and you get someone who you really need well before the deadline so he can help you all that time. I could see him, obviously, he's been a fan favorite. You know, he could be like a, a team MVP yeah. or something, even though there are better players on the Brewers too. But I could see him winning something like that. I could even see him appearing on someone's ballot. He could sure. definitely get MVP votes if he finishes strong and the Brewers finish strong. Although it's worth noting that I think the Brewers were a good team anyway. Yes. Like I did pick them to win the division before the season and even pick them as my surprise team, not that it would have been the biggest surprise if they'd won the division but I thought they were going to be so good and win the division so easily that that would be a surprise and I got to take my good predictions where I can because I completely (laughs) blew the AL Central (laughs) division (laughs) prediction so I'll brag about the NL Central one but the Brewers are good and I think they would have won this division eventually going away anyway so it could just be that Adam had good timing in addition to also playing really, really well yeah. with the Brewers. You know, it, it's uh, if one player could make that much difference, then the Angels would be making the playoffs, too. Right. So right. clearly other things have gone right for the Brewers. So unless you want to give him extra credit for being a catalyst or inspiring the clubhouse or something, you know, he's been a big contributor, but hasn't exactly turned around the season single handedly.
1: Right. Yeah. I think that that's right. I mean, like, I think they probably all do like all the BBWA chapters vote for local awards. Mm -hmm. So he'll probably, like you said, receive some sort of brewer specific honor uh, if he keeps playing the way that he has. And especially if he, you know, has any key moments between now and the end of the season that like really lock in the division for them or whatever. But no, like we can, his story is wonderful. We can be excited for Willie Adamas and he doesn't have to be an MVP for that to be true.
0: Yeah, there are uh, a lot of deserving players ahead of him. Probably he's uh, like. 20th or so in the NL in war and war isn't everything I understand but you still got Tatis atop that list and of course everyone hopes that he will actually continue to play and (laughs) end up at the top there but if not you've got Trey Turner you've got Max Muncy you've got Brian Reynolds you've got Chris Taylor you've got Bryce Harper you've got Buster Posey you've got Brandon Crawford Jake Cronenworth Manny Machado Mookie Betts Nick Castellanos Justin Turner I could keep naming names Juan Soto There are a lot of really great players in in the NL. And so there's no clear candidate for sure. And the difference between like Trey Turner, who is the top non-Tatis Acuna name, and Adamus is like one win. It's like 1.1 war. So I guess that's your best argument there is that even though there are quite a few players ahead of Adamus, they're not far ahead of Adamus. They're like basically all within the war margin of error, more or less. And so he'd have to outplay a lot of really good players over the next couple months to make up that ground. But he could end up close enough that you give him some narrative value and maybe he sneaks ahead of some other players who have higher war. So it's not completely ridiculous. I I think it's just far-fetched.
1: Right. I think that's a good way to put it.
0: All right. Here is a question from Runrin. Dominic Smith is hitting 326-384-61 against lefties this season in 89 at-bats and 223-298-366 against righties in 238 at-bats. These numbers were a few days ago probably as you're hearing this. Opposing managers continue to use lefty relievers against him and the Mets occasionally sit him against a lefty starter. This backfired on Saturday, July 30th, when Reds manager David Bell brought in Sean Doolittle to replace Heath Hembry with two out in the bottom of the ninth and the Reds up by one run. Smith hit a game-tying single up the middle, and the Mets went on to win in extras. Dom was asked about his good numbers against left-handed pitching a while ago and said that he hadn't been aware. He seemed surprised, as he felt like he didn't see the ball as well against lefties. My question is, how many at-bats are required to confirm that a reverse split is real and not just due to a small sample? When do teams start to make decisions based on these numbers rather than career numbers or league average numbers? Why would the Mets sit Smith against a lefty rather than give him more of a chance to improve or continue his success? And I answered this one via email also just because I wanted to send a link to a study that addressed this. And of course, I will include a link to that on our show page. But basically, as I understand it, there's almost no number of plate appearances large enough to conclude that a reverse split is real. It's, It's pretty much never real, or at least statistically speaking, it would be tough to conclude That it's real. There have been cases where reverse splits have persisted over quite a while. And so the study that uh, I will link to here, which was done by the blog Roto Value in response to some tweets by Tom Tango about this a few years ago, basically he issued a challenge and he said, Take all of these hitters who have a reverse split, so they hit pitchers of the same-handedness better than they have hit pitchers of opposite-handedness over some large number of plate appearances, and then see what happens over the rest of their career. Do they continue to have a reverse split, or does it regress to the mean or toward the mean at least part of the way? And I think Tom's prediction was that they would be basically neutral from that point on, and according to the study, in fact— they go back to having not a a normal split exactly, but in the normal direction. So, you know, you have your typical platoon split where you hit opposite-handed pitchers better. And these are guys who had reverse splits over hundreds of plate appearances, or in fact, even thousands of plate appearances. And... Just about all of them reverted to having more normal looking splits after that, except apparently Don Zimmer. (laughs) Don Zimmer (laughs) had like uh, the same or or, uh, even slightly larger reverse split over the rest of his career. So perhaps Don Zimmer had a legitimate reverse split, but (laughs) basically everyone else did not. Yeah. Um, So, you know, 89 at bats or whatever it was of uh, Dominic Smith, not nearly enough. In fact, Dominic Smith could play like most of the rest of his career and you would still probably say that he's going to hit opposite handed pitchers better from now on
1: well and it's one of those things where and i don't want to make too much of it but it is sort of telling that his own experience at the plate is that he is not seeing the ball as well right like you know i don't think that and i don't mean this as a as a specific commentary on dom smith i think this is true of all ball players like I think the natural instinct for a lot of them is given the opportunity to to lay claim to a skill they're gonna do it right they're yeah. gonna say oh yeah I can you know I'm I'm' I'm like Zimmer. I'm the exception, yes, right? That proves the rule. And that is clearly not Dom Smith's experience of his own plate appearances, regardless of what the results of those PAs have been. So um, right. I think that this is a case where we might listen to the batter, and it's possible that in addition to their decisions being informed by analysis, they're also just listening to their player, right? And and not mm-hmm. putting him in a position where he feels like he is often sort of at a disadvantage at the plate. So, Yeah.
0: I mean, the factors that cause platoon splits, like all hitters are subject to them to some degree. So you you can't fight city hall and you can't defy platoon splits forever, really. You just, you get a better look at the ball from the other side. And there may be some hitters who have smaller platoon splits. Naturally, there are hitters who do. And in fact, uh, lefties tend to have larger platoon splits. And so it's even more unlikely that Dominic Smith has a reverse split, I think, but you know the there are certain hitters who do better against certain pitch types maybe and and those pitch types might be more prone to bigger or smaller platoon splits so there could be reasons or maybe just the way you set up the plate or your eye dominance or I don't know, yeah. all, of these, all of these things that affect it. But it's just hard to beat the fact that you get a better look, a better angle, et cetera, if you're facing an opposite-handed pitcher. And given enough time, that shows up in the numbers. So yep. that's uh, one of my pet peeves on broadcasts, at least. Yeah. I, I doubt there are that many teams that are really buying into tiny sample single season reverse splits anymore, but on broadcasts, you will often hear that. And I don't mind if you say that that's been the case as long as you don't insist that it means something or that it's predictive you know if you just say well it's kind of weird but this has happened this year but small sample you know don't buy too much into it but sometimes you do hear commentators really saying like no this was the right move or the wrong move because so-and-so had reverse splits this season and it's just not telling at all based on on what we can see so yeah don't don't make that mistake yeah all right here's a question from michael I was musing on Sam Miller's old article about abolishing the strike zone, one of Sam's most controversial takes. (laughs) A listener email regarding a pitcher complaining that it was unfair for the umpire to tell the batter whether or not a pitch they had just swung at would have been a strike had they not swung. And it got me to wondering, what if the count were a secret? until the at-bat resolved. The umpire would still have to record balls and strikes via some mechanism so that his ball strike calling could still be assessed by the league, and so he couldn't arbitrarily decide what the count was midway through, but it would be secret to the participants, to the players. I think this would make for a more action-packed game as pitchers would be more incentivized to throw more pitches closer to the strike zone to increase uncertainty about the count and batters would be incentivized to swing at more pitches for fear of striking out without having had the chance to take a cut. I'd also enjoy seeing something on the Chiron displaying Something to the effect of that there was a 30% chance the count was one and two, oh a 50% God. chance the count was two and one, and a 20% chance the count was three and oh, based on the locations and the Empire's overall predilections. <laughs> so we just, we'd all be in the dark. We'd all be guessing.
1: This is chaos. Yes, it is. I don't. Chaos can be fun. <laughs> a chaos can be fun, but I don't find this particular kind of chaos fun. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I, what? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, you're going to start you're going to renew a war between like old school baseball types and nerds if you put probabilistic pitch counts oh, yeah. on <laughs> scoreboards in big league parks the people will riot and I don't think the people would be wrong. I <laughs> I'm trying to express what about this I find the most unpleasant because on the one hand like I, I <laughs> <laughs> there like there's strategy that you develop uh, that is count specific, right? Yeah. You, you mm-hmm. you're doing away with all the strategy.
0: <laughs> yeah, although I guess there might also be some new strategies. I mean there that would that be new strategy,
1: effect. but I think it would be dumb. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, people might say, well, we're already into the strike zone being somewhat subjective because we like catcher framing and we're not necessarily pro-robo zone. So if we're okay with the zone being amorphous and shifting from count to count and umpire to umpire and catcher to catcher, then why do we draw a line here and say that everyone involved has to actually understand what the strike zone is? Because if we wanted everyone to always know what a strike was, then we would say, yeah, we want RoboZone, so it'll be consistent. And so you'll always know whether that was a ball or strike.
1: Whether or not you think the strike is literally a strike, right? Whether you sit there and think, ah, yes, you've gotten that call right. You at least have information as the hitter. About what and like what happens at the end of the plate appearance, right? You sit there and you're like, are we, (laughs) am I out? Do I walk to first? Do I, what do I, like what, what happens at the end? Let's say you're a hitter and you don't know how many strikes you have against you. I mean, you'd have some idea, right? Because swinging strikes would still be strikes and you'd probably feel confident that like something that came right down the middle was a strike, but you'd have enough uncertainty that like, do you? Do you know when you need to protect at the plate like what are you what are you doing
0: no yeah, you don't know it which seems- uh I guess it could be a feature, not a bug, it at times. Be. Like Michael's saying, you know, you might you'd have to protect the plate, and if you're a pitcher, you'd have to throw strikes, right? So it would keep the game moving, right? I, I guess it would. I don't know. It might it lead to more scoring. Probably, I, I think it works in the pitcher's advantage that right. you can expand the zone and everything, and so. It would probably lead to more offense, more contact. Maybe that's not the worst thing. Maybe you'd have faster plate appearances, you know, fewer chases and fewer pitches per plate appearance. And so, I don't know. It's got some things to recommend it.
1: I'm willing to believe that it could ha- it could be a boost to offense, but I also think that hitting is like already so reactive to remove information from an already reactive pursuit feels unfair. True. True. So I don't like that part of it we'd have we'd have so much confusion when it was all done and 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 here's here's the sneaky worst part of this right here's the reason that we really shouldn't do it i think that fans generally and players don't really trust umpires i don't think that they actually have a ton of confidence in umpires to certainly to get balls and strikes right and I think that there are times when they think that they've forgotten the count. And so I think that you would have a lot of incredulous and accusatory fans and ballplayers being like, well, that's why should I take your word for this?
0: Yeah, it does happen. I've I've written articles about times when everyone has forgotten the count and there's been a three ball walk or a five ball walk or whatever.
1: Well, and I think it would be confusing to fans. and Oh, yeah we have talked a lot about how the barrier like we don't need to add unnecessary confusion to baseball there's already enough natural confusion in baseball we, we don't we don't need to make it worse so yeah. i don't i don't care for this at all
0: how often do you think what what percentage of the time would all of the parties be on the same page about what the count is. So the pitcher and the hitter are able to guess along with what the umpire secretly called.
1: Well, wouldn't that be at least somewhat dependent on the pitcher and that pitcher's particular repertoire and mix? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Like we'd never know what the count is in a you Darvish (laughs) start because he's throwing all kinds of stuff. It goes all over the place. You'd be sitting there not knowing. Yeah. I want to
0: say like, I don't know, at least like 80% of the time yeah, or something. I think
1: you'd know a lot of the time. I don't know if they'd
0: all agree. Like I, I think the batter would agree with the umpire at least 80% of the time. The pitcher would agree with the umpire at least 80% of but the you time. You wouldn't get all three together. You wouldn't get all three or, yeah. or four if you want to count the catcher too. But I wonder whether hitters would... You because know, now I think hitters, they every borderline call they they want it, right? And yeah. if uh something is called a strike that they don't think was a strike, they will act aggrieved and they'll motion and they'll make faces and they'll maybe even turn around and say something. Because I think they mentally want to give themselves a a break and want to give themselves maybe a little extra space on the corner or whatever. And so I wonder whether, as they were mentally trying to do the count along with the umpire, whether they would be biased in favor of themselves Or whether they would account for the fact that they know the umpire is presumably not biased in favor of the hitter. And so, you know, like, would they count every borderline call? In their favor? Or would they actually do the probabilistic thinking themselves and say, that was a, a 50-50, so I'm actually going to count it as a 50-50? Or would they say, that's a 50-50? So yeah, I don't think that was a strike because I don't want it to be a strike. So I wonder like, if you tallied up right. all the counts at the end of the year that hitters thought they had and pitchers thought they had, I bet on the whole, they would definitely be more optimistic than was justified.
1: I think that that's probably right. I would love to see Joey Votto like exist in this world. Yeah, like that yeah, would too. be that would be fascinating. I don't know how you like. What is the purpose of doing this with a RoboZone though? Once you have a RoboZone, you're like right. you don't. You're not doing this because it's mm-hmm. not. Uh, no, it's <laughs> too much chaos. It's making my head
0: hurt. Yeah. I'm not in favor of this, but I enjoy the idea. And I think it might have some positive byproducts, but it would also definitely have some confounding ones. So on the whole, probably not something we should endorse.
1: Chaos. Cats and dogs (laughs) living together.
0: Chaos is a ladder. It can work in your favor sometimes. (laughs) So here's a question from Tomo. And I've been sitting on this one for a while because I wanted to write about it and- (gasps) Now I have written about it, and the article should be up on Friday when this podcast is up, but it is not published yet, so you have not read it, and I have Mm -mm. not 100% finished it, but I think I have reached a conclusion. So Tomo says, I wonder which is better, pitchers batting or position players pitching? I guess there have not been many cases where position players pitch when pitchers are at bat, but it could be interesting to study. So I've been thinking about this one for a while because it is a deceptively simple question. It sounds like it's easy. You could just uh, look this up in a second, but really it's not all that easy to decide exactly how you would figure out which is better and which is worse and which stats you would actually look at. So I don't know that I have the answer. There's no objective truth here necessarily, but I have an answer. I, I have an opinion. Would you care to express one without having <laughs> done extensive research, presumably? Do you have an inkling for which is worse, which is more incompetent? I guess relative to the average hitter or pitcher.
1: Well, see, this is what I was going to ask you. It's like, what does better mean? Like better yeah. aesthetically, better in terms of the oh, the yeah, rate of a whole other question <laughs> the rate of success mm-hmm. in the activity.
0: Yeah, the way I defined it is just a which is less effective relative to the average hitter or pitcher, basically. So, you know, which is worse (laughs) compared to a legitimate hitter or pitcher?
1: My suspicion is that position players pitching are better relative to that baseline than pitchers hitting are relative to theirs.
0: Mm -hmm. Why is that your suspicion?
1: My suspicion is based on well, having part of it is just having watched them try. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But I, I to give a, a an actual answer, I think that you have more guys who have more recent and more competitive pitching experience who end up being position players only than you have the reverse. Uh-huh. And so I think that's why. And I don't know if that's true either, but that's my mm-hmm. sense. That's my sense of it.
0: Yeah. So I dug into the numbers here and I'd encourage everyone to read the article and make me feel better about the time I spent on it. And (laughs) there will be more numbers and and details in that than I can get to on the podcast. But I'll just kind of lay out how I went about this because I really am fascinated by the fact that both of these things exist in baseball in 2021. And we've talked about it recently, like, is there any comp to other sports where you have pitchers and, and hitters you know they're just they're so bad at doing the thing that they are not actually selected to do and so there just are not a lot of analogs in high level sports to this and I tried to come up with some comps we tried to come up with some on the podcast and they just really are not a lot out there so as I put it in the article No other sport so routinely puts players in starring roles for which they are completely unqualified and untrained. And obviously, there are emergency situations sometimes that call for athletes to play out of position or out of their depth. There are many examples of that. And, you know, there are cases like uh, kickers or punters returning kicks in football or, you know, trying to tackle people who are returning those kicks. But, really when they're trying to tackle like if they actually get to that point it's a sign that something has already gone wrong and right. also it's rare whereas you know hitters it's an inevitability in a national league game it's baked into the rules that hitters are going to pitch and even position player pitching is more common than most of the comps i could come up with and and position player pitchers pitch on purpose like they decide that This is who we want on the mound right now. Granted, like typically in blowouts, so something has gone wrong, but still, you make an affirmative decision that this is who I want. And that just doesn't happen very often. Obviously, the closest comp I think is cricket, which is a, a close cousin of baseball. And there you do have bowlers who bat and batters who sometimes bowl. So that's a, I think, very similar situation, but even there, based on what I could tell, it it's not quite as extreme the contrast. Like bowlers as batters are not quite as terrible as pitchers as hitters and batters as bowlers can get by, you know, doing sort of a, a spin style instead of a, a speed-based style. And you have a lot more two-way players in cricket. You have a lot more all-rounders as opposed to MLP, where you basically have one. And I think that's a sign that it's not quite as specialized. So Having gone through all of that and and figured out that I I couldn't come up with a perfect comp, I think it's a good time to consider this question because both of these things are endangered to varying degrees. Like This is probably the last year of pitcher hitting. We don't know for sure. It got a reprieve in 2021, but it's probably gone next year. And even position player pitchers, I think there is some momentum toward a mercy rule potentially, which would probably do away with them. And there's that rule that was going to be on the books last year, but was canceled because of the pandemic, but probably will be brought back, I would assume, where you have to have a a margin of what six runs or more, at least in order to bring in a, a position player pitcher has to be extra innings or something. So that would cut down on them to some degree. And I think, you know, people are over it because it happens so often that a lot of the charm has worn off. So. I think that uh, we could be in a situation where a few years down the road, these things either don't happen or they're a lot less common than they are right now. So this is the the, the heyday or the last gasp possibly. So what I did is I looked at just the, the basic stats, which are totally terrible for both. So entering Thursday, I looked at 2018 to 2021 just because uh, pitchers have gotten worse as hitters over time. So you have to look at recent years and also because this is like peak position player pitching. And we've seen so many more of them in the past few years. And because we've seen so many more of them, they don't throw as hard as they used to. So you kind of have to look at the present state to assess things. So over that time period, pitcher hitters have produced a slash line of 118, 150, 150. That's a 300 OPS with a 43.4% strikeout rate, a 3.2% walk rate, and 58 homers in eh, 13,500-something plate appearances. Terrible! But over the same span, position player pitchers, and I should note I excluded Otani from both of these samples, position player pitchers allowed a slash line of 340, 410, 674. That's a 1,084 OPS with a 6% strikeout rate, a 9.3% walk rate, and 90 homers allowed in just over 1,200 plate appearances. That's a 9.21 ERA. So both totally terrible, but which is worse, a 300 OPS as a hitter or a 9.21 ERA as a pitcher? It's it's kind of hard to figure that out. So normally you might say, well, you could use one of the index stats, you know, yeah. OPS plus or ERA plus or something. And if you do that, then hitters have had a negative 19 OPS plus and position player pitchers have had a 60 ERA plus. So that looks like a landslide victory for position player pitchers. But I was talking to Tom Tango about this, and he said that you know under the hood, ERA plus and OPS plus are, are both abominations of math and that uh, at the extremes, they break down. And pitcher hitting and position player pitching are nothing if not extreme. Yeah. So you just can't really use them for this purpose. However, we don't need them. We have an alternative. At Baseball Savant, you can search for and sort by something called some run value which is just the number of runs better or worse than average some player or a group of players were so if you query the total run values generated by pitcher hitters and position player pitchers since 2018 and then you divide those totals by their respective total plate appearances then you can compare them on the same footing and on a rate basis so here's what we get now over that time Pitcher hitters have produced negative 0.146 runs below average per plate appearance. And negative numbers are bad for hitters because they are trying to produce runs. They're trying to score runs. Position player pitchers have yielded 0.123 runs above average per plate appearance. And these are both worse than average because positive numbers are bad for pitchers because they're trying to prevent runs. But you have 0.146 for pitcher hitters. 0.123 for position player pitchers so while both have been horrendous pitcher hitters have been more horrendous and you know to put those numbers into perspective because we're not really used to thinking in terms of run values like the worst total run value hitter real hitter this season which has been the pirates kevin newman he's at uh negative 0.072 runs below average, and then the pitcher with the worst total run value, Mike fulton star <laughs> of my minor league draft <laughs> free agent uh, team. And he's still getting innings. Yeah, he so sure So it works is. for me. <laughs> Can be as bad as he wants as long as he gets me the playing time. He's been .055 runs below average per PA. So these are the absolute dregs of the real hitters and pitchers. No offense to Newman and, and Fulton. And they are still more than twice as good as the average pitcher hitter and position player pitcher. So they're both very terrible, as we know. But judging by that sample, pitcher hitters have been worse. I looked back further. I looked Statcast era, 2015 to 2021. Still pitcher hitters worse. Looked the entire pitch tracking era, 2008 to 2021. Still pitcher hitters worse. Both of them are are better relative to the last few years, just because uh, they keep getting worse and worse and worse relative to the actual legitimate league average hitters. But the relationship between them is the same: pitcher hitters consistently less productive. So that seems like it's the answer. And you know, just to put this a little less confusingly, maybe than run values since 2018, pitcher hitters have allowed a 4.47 wOBA that is 130 points worse than the 317 league average. So, they're 130 points worse. Pitcher hitters have produced a 137 woba. That's 180 points worse than league average. So again, pitcher hitters just worse. And if you do look at the head-to-head confrontations and there are not many of them. Yeah. There've been only 36 occasions on which a position player pitcher has pitched to a pitcher hitter since 2015. But if they were even, if they were evenly matched, then you would expect them to produce roughly a league average weighted on base, which again is 317 over that time. Instead, the pitcher hitters have produced a 241 Woba or 245 if you go back to 2015. So they've been worse than average position player pitchers have had the upper hand. And the last caveat that I should probably mention is that position player pitchers do have it easy to some extent because typically they pitch in blowouts. So. They're often facing below average batters and also maybe those batters are not trying quite as hard as usual, you know, whether because of unwritten rules aside from your mean Mercedes or maybe they just have trouble psyching themselves up in these situations because they're winning or losing by so much. And also they're facing someone who's so bad that it's almost embarrassing to, to beat him. So, you know, sometimes you'll see like the the plate appearance earlier this year where Freddie Freeman struck out against Anthony Rizzo right. and, you know, he walks away laughing. It's like, you know, this is silly. Or Javier Baez, when he faces position player pitchers, he bats lefty. <laughs> so they're not taking this totally seriously. He's done that three times and he doubled and flied out twice. So that might make you think that, okay, the numbers are worse. For pitcher hitters, but maybe it's uh, skewed because position player pitchers are are benefiting from the situations in which they pitch. However, pitcher hitters have it easy, too, because pitchers tend to phone it in a little when facing other pitchers. You know, they throw more fastballs. They take a little off. Generally, they're just trying to catch their breath before they run the gauntlet of the top of the order. So, Neither the position player pitchers nor the pitcher hitters, really, their numbers don't reflect how horrible they would be if they faced the same circumstances as normal pitchers and hitters all the time. So just as one last check here, I took one more run at this and... I tried to limit the sample to higher leverage situations. So Baseball Savant lets you select scenarios where the go-ahead run is at the plate or on base or the tying run is at the plate or on base or on deck. So these samples are smaller, obviously, because managers are probably more inclined to pinch hit for pitchers if the situation actually matters, and position players rarely pitch in moments that matter, so it's going to be a lot of extra inning games where just all your other options are exhausted. However, when these situations arose, we can probably safely assume that their opponents were actually trying. (laughs) So in these higher leverage circumstances, I went back to 2008 here just to, to get a larger sample, and in these cases, I won't bore you with the numbers, they're in the article, but basically both of the groups way, way worse than they normally are, which supports the idea that uh, they're getting off a little easy typically, but pitcher hitters get even worse by comparison. <laughs> so, no matter how you slice it, pitcher hitters are the worst. It's just it's the battle between the movable object and the stoppable force. I guess they're both totally incompetent, but if you have to decide which one is more incompetent, It is pitcher hitters as far as I can tell. So your intuition there matches what I concluded after many more hours of work.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just think it goes to show that we have to keep having pitchers hit because, you know, if they have enough time, they might turn this thing around. You never know, Ben.
0: Any year now. They're just they're gonna figure it out. I know they can do it. No, I the the one perk of pitcher hitting from an analytical standpoint is that it's just it's the control group. It's the it's the sample that lets us say, Okay, here's how much better all of the other players are getting, because pitcher hitters are not really trying to get better. Maybe they're getting more athletic over time, but they're really not trying to hit or they're not selected for their offensive skill. And so that's just sort of the baseline and the fact that they keep getting worse and worse and worse tells you that everyone else is getting better and better and better at that and so it's kind of handy to have that gauge just to point to and say uh, no the golden age of baseball are the best players ever we're not playing in whatever year of your youth you think was the peak of baseball no it's now players are better than ever so that's the one thing that I will miss and and I guess I'll just sort of miss the spectacle of Oh uh, yeah you know, players who are completely unqualified to do these things, doing these things at the pinnacle of their profession. And if these things were a little less common, I would appreciate them more and I wouldn't want to lose them like the Waxahachi swap where you had pitchers in the field sometimes, which still happens rarely in emergencies. But I like that because it was very rare. And so it was special when it happened and it didn't happen so often that it became a bother. Whereas with pitcher hitting... Yeah, I understand once in a blue moon, someone does something cool, but most of the time it's an out and it's an out much more often than the typical plate appearance. And, you know, same for position player pitchers where every now and then you get an entertaining one, but often it's just a sheer incompetence on display. And it's like, what are we doing here? So I'll miss aspects of it, but on the whole, probably not the worst thing if these went away or at least became curtailed.
1: No, but then what will we test my intuition against?
0: <laughs> yeah. No, you were right on the money there, as far as I can tell. And I think another reason is that you do semi-often get pitchers who literally are not trying. like They do not swing. They're ordered not to swing. (laughs) They don't want to hurt themselves. They're recuperating from some injury, so they don't swing. Whereas a position player pitcher always has to pitch. They might not throw as hard as they can, but they do have to do something as opposed to just stand there until they strike out or walk. (laughs) But I, I think that's it. And also, along the lines of what you were saying. I think also, even though position players obviously are not selected for their pitching skill, I think the traits that they are selected for correlate more closely with pitching than hitting does for pitchers, right? Because- Part of the thing that a position player, or at least most of them, is, is valued, right? Yeah. They have to have arm strength, they have right. to have arm accuracy. Yes. And that is part of pitching, right? Whereas hitting is just not really part of pitching. Like, you know, yeah, some some level of athleticism is helpful for both, but they are just two completely separate skills really, and, and there's just not a whole lot of correlation there. So that's my best answer for for why that would be the case
1: in all of your extensive research did you happen upon what percentage of position players who pitch are primarily dhs when they are acting in their position player role cuz that might be further evidence mm. for us like do they when you're down 11 runs and you got to you got to <laughs> keep playing cuz that's what we do you're mm-hmm. like, you're probably not sending your DH out there. You're like, I'm going to send the guy who has to throw the ball across the diamond like a couple of yeah. times a-, a game. Like I-, I I'm sure that it isn't actually thought of to that degree because who cares? Right. And because, you know, you don't want to like you don't want to give up your DH. But I do wonder, like, what is the what's the breakdown there? Yeah, I did not
0: look into that, but you're probably right, especially because DHs tend to be older, recovering from some sort of injury or getting a day off or whatever. You don't want
1: to put them in the field because once you do that, you got to do all kinds of other shenanigans and you're already, as we've established, down 11 runs. So you're just trying to get out of there.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, again, I hope people go read that article because it was kind of a a fun one for me. It's always nice when I set out not knowing the answer to that. Mm -hmm. My intuition was similar to yours, but I really just didn't know. And it's not so clear cut that you can just kind of eyeball it so it, it was sort of satisfying to arrive at what I considered to be a conclusive answer although perhaps people can quibble with that and if they read the article and have some objections I hope that they will let me know about it and I, there's much more information in there that I did not share in this segment even though I shared a lot in this segment <laughs> so that was sort of blasty, but that was not my actual stat blast. I, I guess I can end with the stat blast, but maybe before we do that, we can do our Meet a Major Leaguer's for today.
1: Yeah. Meet a Major Leaguer.
0: I am very eager to meet this nascent
1: Major Leaguer. It's the thrilling debut of somebody new. Let's meet this mysterious Major Leaguer.
0: I took a little look just to see the pace of major league debuts this year and we're right on target for 2019 Actually I, I thought it might be more Just because of you know post 2020 and COVID and all of that But it seems like we're at 190 debuts Through this August 4th and We were at 191 Debuts in 2019 through The same date so it's a lot That is why we do this segment It's way too many players to keep track of But it doesn't look like it's Accelerating this season at least So so That's something so we have each met a major leaguer and now we will share (laughs) what we learned would you care to lead off?
1: Sure, I will go first we've met a couple of major leaguers Ben and I think we've enjoyed each time but I have the best name we're going to have the whole year. I feel confident even though it is only August 5th and I imagine we will do this segment at least a couple of more times before the season concludes. We are going to meet Shay Spitzbarth
0: Excuse you Jay Spitzbarth. I will wow.
1: say once again, human names, robust.
0: <laughs> it sounds like a combination of like multiple fluids that could come out of your face. <laughs>
1: Spitzbarth.
0: Yeah, there have been some really good names added to the rolls this year. Like uh, I did Tucapita Marcano last Incredible. time. It's it's tough to beat that. There have uh, been many good ones, like Packy Naughton recently Incredible. arrived. <laughs> Just so many good ones, but yeah, Shea Spitzbarth. That's tough to top. So, tough tell to us top. about Mister Spitzbarth.
1: So he he went undrafted out of Malloy College. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And after his junior season in 2015, he played on the Cape with the Wareham gateman and he caught the eye of a Dodger scout there. He signed with Los Angeles and made his way to the Fall League. And perhaps knowing his odds as an undrafted guy out of a smaller school, he made sure to have backups. So here I'm going to quote from. A Mike Persak piece in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. That's a lot of peas in quick succession. <laughs> Both Spitzbarth's father and uncle are firemen, and in 2017, Spitzbarth intended to take the fireman's exam to become one himself, but he was still in Arizona at the time with about two days left in the season, he said. I don't know why I didn't leave the Fall League to go take it, Spitzbarth said. <laughs> it's just hard to say like a lot of times in a row.
0: She sells Spitzbarth by the seashore. <laughs>
1: Exactly, and I just didn't leave. My uncle and my dad called their chiefs and said, "Hey, can you take it at a courthouse in Arizona somewhere?" They said, "No, it won't work out." So I missed it, unfortunately. By 2019, he had reached AA or AAA, excuse me, with the Dodgers. But he was also 24 years old and had an 8.18 ERA and a 6.21 FIP. He wasn't invited to LA's alternate site last year. Again, now I'm going to quote from Persak Instead, he's. He was staying ready by pitching in the Mid-Island Men's League in Staten Island, New York, for a team called Butchie's Heat. <laughs> so many great names in this one. His teammates and opponents were plumbers, firemen, policemen, garbagemen, and local college players, he says. He tried to stay fresh, but he also recognized how ridiculous this setting was, so he told himself that if he didn't make it to the majors in 2021 or 2022 at the latest, that would be the end of his baseball career. And then we can flash forward to the end of last year when he was selected in the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft by the Pittsburgh Pirates. Upon his selection, he made the minor league phase, guys, I care or know about off the top of my head section of Eric Longenhagen's piece on the Rule 5. And here I am quoting from Eric. The Pirates took Shea Spitzbarth with the first pick of the AAA phase. He doesn't throw all that hard, 91 to 93 for me, but his heater has nearly perfect backspin and he has a plus changeup. And then Spitzbarth would go on to be an honorable mention on this year's Pirates list with Eric noting, minor league rule five pick, Shea Spitzbarth has a plus changeup. That was the the full extent of his mention. Spitzbarth had a 141 ERA and a 443 FIP in 32 AAA innings for Pittsburgh this season, striking out 19.7% of hitters and walking 10.2%. He also applied to join the Port Authority Police Department just in case, but he was not accepted. So that's interesting. Lucky for him,
0: I guess. Yeah.
1: yeah. He was called up on August 2nd when the Pirates placed Chad Cool on the COVID IL, and he made his debut that same day against the Brewers. He allowed a single to the first batter he faced, then walked the next one before inducing a flyout to get out of it. He came back out for the eighth and pitched a 1-2-3 frame in his next outing on August 4th. It went Eduardo Escobar single, Avicel Garcia flyout, Tyrone Taylor flyout, Lorenzo Kane single, Luis Arias flyout. He has a 0.00 ERA and a 4.45 FIP. He has a 50% fly ball rate <laughs> and mm-hmm. hasn't struck anyone out yet. He was optioned back to AAA after his game on the fourth, and he is the first Molloy alumnus to make it to the major leagues. And after his debut, he said, I shouldn't be here. This is impossible. It's just a lot of hard work and dedication, and it's not just me. It's family, it's friends, it's coaches, it's teammates who have helped me along the way, trainers along the way. It's unbelievable. Hard work. That's all I can say about it. And all I can say one more time is Spitzberth.
0: Once more with gusto. Yeah, Spitzbarth. that's a good one. So, my player debuted a day after Shay Spitzbart, and he is another native New Yorker, although he is from Huntington, New York, not Staten Island, but Long Island. And he is Stephen Ridings, new Yankees sensation. Stephen Ridings. He is 25 to Shea Spitzbarth's 26, but he too is a right-handed pitcher, although he is a giant, as you would expect, because he's a Yankee. So, of course he is. Mm -hmm. And I was suggested this name by Patreon supporter Andrew Perlman, and I will read his message. He says... Do you take nominations for Meet a Major leaguer Subjects? In this case, we do. Because, please, 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 you have to talk about Stephen Ridings, who debuted tonight with the Yankees. Three strikeouts and a double allowed in one inning against the Orioles. Here's why. He is the first Major League Baseball player to come from D3 Haverford College since 1911. Yes, Meg, you read that right. He is from the Bico. Yeah. He's also 6'8 and throws 101 miles per hour which raises all kinds of questions about what a guy who throws 101 is doing in D3 in the first place. Was he all gas and no other skills? Did he develop velo in college? What did he do his senior thesis on? My fellow Haverford alums are bursting with pride and excitement tonight. Our grads have an unusual penchant for getting jobs in front offices, including Thad Levine of the Twins and former d GM Josh Burns, but getting onto the field has been elusive. In fact, there has been only one major leaker from haverford in all of the history and it is bill Lindsay who got 68 plate appearances in 1911 for the uh, cleveland naps when they were still called the naps and he had a 49 ops plus and that was it that was the distinguished history of haverford college in the majors up until just a few days ago and andrew continues lastly one more fun fact Stephen Ridings, that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, was picked out of a D3 college in Pennsylvania in the 2016 draft. And another pitcher named Stephen Ridings with a V was also picked out of a D3 college in Pennsylvania Messiah University in the same draft. Stephen Ridings with a V made it as high as AAA in Seattle's system. This is irresistible, isn't it? According to the Effectively Wild Wiki, Haverford has never been mentioned on the podcast. Now's the moment. If we wait 110 years until the next Haverford major leaguer emerges, I'm not sure if I will still be listening. That is a good <laughs> point. Can't even guarantee that I will still be hosting at that point. So we had better give the glad tidings or writings while we can. So, Stephen writings, it's a, an excellent question. Where did he come from and how is he throwing 101? So he entered in the top of the seventh, and he struck out DJ Stewart. He struck out Pedro Severino. He gave up a double to Michael Franco, and then he struck out Pat Valaika. And this was kind of a a cool game where, for unfortunate reasons, the Yankees had a, a bunch of COVID cases. They had a game where everyone who pitched was making his major league debut. So, Luis Heal, who is a known prospect, he had a very impressive outing as the starter. He went six innings, and then Ridings came in in relief, and he had a very impressive inning. And then after that, Brody Kerner came in, and he pitched fairly well, too. So, this was a, a nice game for minor league depth. It was the second time in Yankees history that three pitchers debuted in the same game, hmm. the first time since September 26, 1950, when Lou Burdett, Dave Madison, and Ernie Neville debuted against the Senators. So everyone was seemingly quite impressed by Stephen Rydings and his writings fastball, as one would expect. And I asked Eric Longenhagen again, I will quote him too, I said, where did Stephen Writings come from? And he said, no effing clue. (laughs) 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 Which is uh, essentially my sentiment about Stephen Writings. So he was drafted by the Cubs in the eighth round of the 2016 draft, and then he kind of bounced around a bit, didn't seem to do anything very impressive in the minors. He was in short season with the Cubs, and then the Royals picked him up, and he was with them in 2019. He had a five, nine ERA in the pioneer league. And then I think they released him and the Yankees signed him after the pandemic season, just this past January. And he had not pitched like in full season ball, even in the minors to that point, but they started him in triple a, he put up a 0.47 ERA with uh 14 strikeouts per nine in 19 innings. And then they promoted him to triple a and he continued to pitch well and get punch outs there. And then next thing you know, a few guys were on the COVID IL, and here was Stephen riding, striking out a bunch of Orioles. So I tried to figure out exactly how this happened like he got seven whiffs in the 16 pitches he threw I understand it's the Orioles but still still and yeah I read a little bit about his backstory so in Little League he moved back and forth between the A and B travel teams he was cut from his eighth grade team so it's one of those you know no one believed in me and that kind of thing he was not like a a top prospect despite his size and as a junior in college he put on 30 pounds he worked on his mechanics He went from throwing 84 to 90, which is a nice jump, but still a far cry from the 101 he was touching just this week. And Eric said he saw him while he was with the Cubs. And at that point, he was 91 to 95. Like he has data from an Idaho Falls outing in 2019 in the Royal system where he was 92 to 95. He topped out at 96. So He must have used his pandemic more productively than most people did because somehow (laughs) he has gained like five miles per hour in the last couple of years. And I don't know exactly how that happened, but while sitting out the pandemic and, and no minor league season, he was selling sports equipment in Florida. I think he was working for Rawlings selling gloves, and he also worked as a substitute chemistry teacher because he has a chemistry degree. And then he was working out with Eric Cressy, the Yankees director of player health and performance in Florida. And then that led to the Yankees signing him. And obviously that has paid off for both parties. So it is pretty impressive. And just in case that long shot story paying off was not enough for you, you also have the waterworks here because the day before he made his debut and and like the day he got the call, his grandmother died, unfortunately. Aww. And so he was mourning her and he'd lost his grandfather a couple of years before that. And so while they're making funeral arrangements and such and trying to come to terms with that loss, he gets the call that he is making the major league. So it's hard to imagine more of a roller coaster of emotions than that. So, you know, there's a, a video of him talking about that which i will link to and it is uh as touching as one would expect so it's a a nice feel-good story and unless that was some sort of adrenaline induced fluke like this seems to be another bullpen weapon that the yankees have somehow picked up out of nowhere and it does seem like getting guys to throw hard and you know stuffing the miners with the Prospects maybe who are seen as sort of low ceiling but end up being useful bullpen contributors, that seems like it is a strength of that organization. And so here is Writings being uh, another case study there. So coming all the way from d3 and making good so he is uh is he now i guess he's the largest yankee now right which is saying, saying something, something. <laughs> yeah geez <laughs> but he's also looming large in the bullpen picture especially now while the staff is shorthanded so congrats to Stephen ridings it's a, a nice surprising story
1: just what the yankees needed another guy who throws hard <laughs>
0: exactly yeah all right. So we have met Stephen Ridings and Shay Spitzbarth. Spitzbarth. So, well met, Major Leaguers. So now we will play one more song because it is time to finish with the Stat Blast.
1: They'll take a data set sorted by something like A-R-A-M-I-N-S or O-B-S-Plus. And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit discuss it at length and analyze it by...
0: Okay, so this stat blast is prompted by another listener email that I have also been sitting on for a few months because it required some research, but I wanted to do it at some point. So this question comes from Ben from New Jersey, who says, I'm in law school and was reading a case for legislation slash regulation, Flood versus Kuhn, if you are curious. And it starts with what is essentially an ode to baseball. By Justice Blackmun. In his opinion, there is a list of many baseball players seemingly randomly listed. The list has a bunch of Hall of Famers, but I'll admit there are many names I don't recognize. I'm curious about your thoughts about the list. And he sent us a a screenshot of the page, but there are places you can find this online because this is a famous opinion and uh, a famous case. So, Flood versus Kuhn, for those who don't know, this was a Supreme Court case in 1972 that upheld MLB's antitrust exemption. It arose because Kurt Flood challenged the antitrust exemption because he refused to be traded to the Phillies from the Cardinals after the 1969 season. And uh, he was, you know, trying to combat the reserve clause. And ultimately, that effort was successful via other methods. But Flood versus Kuhn upheld MLB's uh, case here. And I'll read from the Wikipedia entry. Although the court ruled in baseball's favor five to three, it admitted the original grounds for the antitrust exemption were tenuous at best, that baseball was indeed interstate commerce for purposes of the act, and the exemption was an anomaly. It had explicitly refused to extend to other professional sports or entertainment. That admission set in motion events, which ultimately led to an arbitrator's ruling, nullifying the reserve Clause and opening the door for free agency in baseball and other sports. So This was almost 50 years ago, but it's quite famous. The legal eagles in our audience will know about this opinion. And here also continuing from Wikipedia, the opinion has been criticized in several ways. It is seen by some as an overly strict and reflexive reliance on the legal doctrine of stare decisis that made an earlier mistake uncorrectable. Even the text of the decision itself, and here's where we're getting to the question, mainly a four-page introductory encomium to the game and its history by Justice Harry Blackman that included a lengthy listing of baseball greats came in for criticism. Some of the other justices and court observers felt it was inappropriate for a judicial opinion (laughs) at the time of his later retirement and death. Blackman would be remembered for it as much as Roe v. Wade. (laughs) So, the two legacies of Justice Blackman, Roe v. Wade, and naming a bunch of baseball players in this opinion. And he was uh, a big baseball fan. He was horny for baseball. And he is really, he was super excited (laughs) to to get to write this opinion. (laughs) And uh, in his Wikipedia page, it notes Blackman and Justice Potter Stewart of you know it when you see it fame. Both followed baseball obsessively in one oral argument on October 10th, 1973. Stewart passed Blackman a note that read, VP Agnew just resigned. Mets 2, Red (laughs) 0. The game in question was the fifth (laughs) and deciding game of the 1973 National League Championship Series. And the Mets won it 7-2, sending them to the 1973 World Series. So this was Blackman's moment. He had the spotlight. It was a baseball-related case. And how was he going to begin his opinion? Basically explaining what baseball was. (laughs) This is basically the baseball Wikipedia page. That is how he started here. I'll just give you a taste. It begins. It is a century and a quarter since the New York Nine defeated the Knickerbockers 23 to one on Hoboken's Elysian Fields, June 19, 1846, with Alexander J. Cartwright as the instigator. And the Empire. The teams were amateur, but the contest marked a significant date in baseball's beginnings. That early game led ultimately to the development of professional baseball and its tightly organized structure. He goes on from there to the Cincinnati Red Stockings. The ensuing colorful days are well known. The ardent follower and the student of baseball know of General Abner Doubleday, the formation of the National League in 1876, Chicago's supremacy in the first year's competition under the leadership of et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. It's like, sir, this is an RB. Sirs, (laughs) this is the Supreme Court. Like, (laughs) we know what baseball is, but thank you. Anyway, it goes on in that vein for a few paragraphs, and here we get to the gold. All right. So this paragraph starts, then there are the many names celebrated for one reason or another that have sparked the diamond and its environs and that have provided Tinder for recaptured thrills, for reminiscence and comparisons, and for conversation and anticipation in season and off season, colon, followed by 88 names. (laughs) Yep. Ty Cobb. Babe Ruth, Tris Speaker, Walter Johnson. I'm not going to name all of the names. I will spare you. <laughs> but he just listed 88 names. Yep. This is the original Remember Some Guys. Yep. Just in the middle of this important Supreme Court decision, he thought, you know what? I am just going to name 88 people associated with baseball right now. And the best part of it is that after he finishes the 88 names, he says, the list seems endless. <laughs> It sure does. (laughs) It continues from there. But the question is, how did he pick these particular 88 names of all the possible names? And what sort of analyses can we do about these 88 names? And so... That's what I wanted to dig into a little here, and I'm glad that listener Ben gave me the opportunity to do this uh, very meaningful research. So I'll read you a little (laughs) bit from a a Sabre story from 2009 by Ross E. Davies, who writes a little bit about the way that this list was created. And apparently in the book, The Brethren, Inside the Supreme Court by Bob Woodward and Mm -hmm. Scott Armstrong, There is a a story that... Apparently, in the first draft of this long list of names, there were no black players. It was all white players, you know, probably from before the color barrier was broken. And so the story goes that then there was a revision and they said, oh, we should probably have some black players on there. Now, this Sabre Journal story disputes that and says there's no actual evidence to support that idea. There were multiple drafts, but the black players who appear on the list were on the earlier draft that we have a record of. So it's hard to disprove, but it's also hard to substantiate. But I'll just read you a little bit, uh, an excerpt from the book, The Brethren, which explains how this list came to be. Blackman was delighted. (laughs) Apart from an earlier assignment in an abortion case, he felt he had suffered under the chief justice receiving poor opinions to write, including more than his share of tax and Native American cases. He thought that if the antitrust laws were applied to baseball, its unique position as the national pastime would be undermined. A devoted fan first of the Chicago Cubs and later the Minnesota Twins and I think he and Chief Justice Warrenberger were referred to as the Minnesota Twins. He welcomed this chance to be one of the boys. With his usual devotion to detail, Blackman turned to the baseball encyclopedia, which he kept on the shelf behind his desk. He set down minimum lifetime performance standards, numbers of games played, lifetime batting averages, or earned run averages. He picked out representative stars from each of the team's positions and decades of organized baseball, then closeted away in the Justice's Library. Blackman wrote an opening section that was an ode to baseball. In three extended paragraphs, he traced the history of professional baseball. He continued with a list of the many names, et cetera, et cetera. I read that already. The list seems endless, Blackman wrote. He paid homage to the verse Casey at the Bat and other baseball literature. When he had finished, Blackman circulated his draft. Justice Brennan was surprised. He thought Blackman had been in the library researching the abortion cases, not playing with baseball cards. (laughs) So Blackman is basically doing a stat last year when he was uh, supposed to be doing legal research. One of Justice Rehnquist's clerks called Blackman's chambers and joked that Camille Pasquale, a former Washington senator's pitcher, should have been included in the list of greats. Blackman's clerk phoned back the next day. The justice recalls seeing Pasquale pitch and remembers his fantastic curveball, but he pulled out his encyclopedia and looked up his record. He decided Pasquale's 174 wins were not enough. It is difficult to make these judgments of whom to include, but Justin Blackman felt that Pasquale is just not in the same category with Christy Matheson's 373 oh wins. I hope you will understand. Calling Blackman's chambers to request that some favorite player be included became a new game for the clerks. <laughs> Stewart was embarrassed that he had assigned the opinion to Blackman. He tried to nudge him into recognizing the inappropriateness of the opening section, jokingly telling him that he would go along with the opinion if Blackman would add a member of Stewart's hometown team The Cincinnati Reds So Blackman added a red (laughs) Marshall registered his protest The list included no black baseball players Now this is the part that is somewhat disputed Blackman explained that most of the players On the list antedated World War II And black players had been excluded From the major leagues until 1947 That was the point exactly Marshall replied Regardless of whether that is actually what happened, Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella and Central Page are on the list, as well as former Red, Eppa Rixie, who evidently was added to, to placate Justice Stewart. So I did some numerical analysis here, and I will put my spreadsheet online for anyone who wants to look at the data pertaining to Justice Blackman's long list of names here. But here are the stats. So we've got... 88 names, right? And 79 of them are players. You've got some pioneers in there. You've got some executives in there. You know, Henry Chadwick is included, Bill Clem, Branch Rickey, Connie Mack is in there. You got some managers, some people who played, but were mostly known for contributions off the field and notable names. But 79 players, 66 Hall of Famers. So not a a bad ratio, I suppose, of the 88 names he's got 66 hall of famers okay the average career war of the players on the list is 61.8 solid and the median war is 55.5 so you know given that justice blackman did not have war available to him in 1972 in the baseball encyclopedia he's doing all right here with the basic stats that he had And I was also curious about just when these names hailed from, because uh, I spared you the entire reading of the list, but you'll note if you look at them that they hail from an early era of baseball. Like there's, you know, again, this is 1972, but there's no Mickey Mantle on here. There's no Willie Mays on here. There's no Roberto Clemente on here. There's no Aaron. There's no Joe DiMaggio even on here. You'd think that these are some of the many names that have sparked the diamond and its environs, but hey, it's his opinion, pun intended. Ba-dum-tsh. So like anyone recent really was missing <laughs> from this yeah. list. So the median debut year for a player included on the list was 1909 and the median ending year or last year in the majors was 1927. And I don't think that is a, a coincidence because if you look it up, Justice Blackman was born in 1908. So this lines up very closely with uh, when Justice Blackman, by complete coincidence, was uh, a youngin' and was yep. perhaps in his formative years as a fan, as we discussed, that sort of magic, you know, eight to 12 range or, or whatever it is that you kind of imprint on baseball often. Many of these players were in their heyday during that time. And so not a a total surprise here that he would choose them. The earliest debut of a player on the list, Cap Anson is on there, who debuted in 1871, if you count the National Association, or King Kelly, 1878. And the latest year that anyone was active on this list was Satchel Paige, who, of course, pitched forever, and his last year was 1965 in the majors. Other than that, it's Campanella and Robinson in 57 to 56. So really, we are pulling from a, a certain era here. Yeah. and. What I wanted to do was see, like, who are, are the strangest inclusions? Like, how did this guy get on this list with Babe Ruth and Walter Johnson and Cy Young and Ty Cobb? And then also maybe identify some of the snubs, some of the players who should have been on the list and were not even sticking with the the time period that he was pulling from here. So of those 79 players, there are 12 of them who had a career war below 25 where you might kind of raise an eyebrow and say, this guy, why Why that guy exactly? And <laughs> some of them are there for reasons uh, not having to do with the quality of their play, at least directly. They're famous for something else. So you've got poor Fred Merkel on the mm-hmm. list, he of, of Merkel's boner. And you've got Al Bridwell, who was sort of the fluffer for Merkel's boner. Oh <laughs> he, my God, he was, Ben. He was the one who was uh, at the plate and initiated that play. And then you've got uh, Fred Snodgrass of Snodgrass's Muff, <laughs> while we're uh, doing double entendres what and, and are innuendo we doing here <laughs> on our podcast. <laughs> and then you've got Germany Schaefer, who is famous for uh, "quote unquote" stealing first base and, and running backward. And then the worst player on the list by far in terms of career war is Mo Berg, who had a negative 4.6 career war. Very bad at baseball, unless our, our defensive stats for catchers are way off on him. But yeah. he is obviously a, a well-known player for many other reasons. So you've got a bunch of guys like that whose uh, name recognition outstrips their actual production. But then you have some guys who don't necessarily fall into that category. So. I think the strangest inclusion, because he has the lowest career war other than Moberg, is Bill Wamsgams. So uh, Bill Wamsgams, no relation to Tom Wamsgams from Succession. It is spelled slightly differently, but he played in the majors from 1914 to 1926, and he amassed four war. In his career. And you wonder why is Bill Wamsgames on this list? So I was looking at his baseball reference bullpen page and it says Bill Wamsgames was known as Wambi because his name was too long to fit into box scores. Okay, (laughs) sure. He did not like the abbreviated form of his name. (laughs) It's, It's too bad, Bill. He is known primarily for turning an unassisted triple play in the fifth inning of game five of the 1920 World Series. All right. I guess that's some claim to fame. Maybe that was better known in 1972 (laughs) than it is now. Bill played 13 years in the majors and eight years in the minors. He also managed a couple years in the minors. He twice led the American League in sacrifice hits and once in games played. Wambi, as of 2006, is the only player in Major League history with a last name that starts with Wam. <laughs> so there's, there's a reason. Just
1: anticipating the fame yeah, in right. his decision is all. Well.
0: <laughs> yeah. So anyway, nothing there gives you a clear idea for why you would pick Bill Wamsgans necessarily over many of the other players that you might have picked. And here's what I suspect. He was featured in The Glory of Their Times. Oh, the, sure. Yeah, the classic oral history by Lawrence Ritter, who traveled all over the country and got some of these, uh, you know, dead ball figures to commit their memories to tape and transcribe them. And it's a great book, wonderful book, one of the best books. But that book came out in 1966. And I'm going to guess that Justice Blackman devoured right Glory Cute. of Their Times. That is right up his alley. And I think... That explains some of the other common names <laughs> that uh, are on this list that you might wonder why they are on this list. So Rube Bressler, oh, he's in Glory of Their Times. What do you know? Got Hans it. Lobert, Glory of Their Times. Lobert. Davy Jones of the Tigers, not of the Locker or of the Monkeys. He is in Glory of Their Times. Bob O'Farrell, Glory of Their Times. Al Bridwell also is uh, Glory of Their Times. Jimmy Austin, Glory of Their Times, so we could go on. I'm pretty sure that uh, he was flipping through that book and remembering some guys, and that is a big part of why he included those names on this list. Now, The Biggest Snubs by War, which again, he did not and could not avail himself of, but now that we can, I looked for The Biggest Snubs by War through 1945 because that's uh, kind of... ending date from when he was pulling most of these names so on the pitching side the top 10 who should be on but are not on kid nichols tim Keefe, eddie plank john clarkson pud galvin jim mccormick carl hubble red faber vic willis and on the hitter side, Mel Ott. I don't know how Mel Ott didn't make this list. Yeah. George Davis, Roger Connor, Arky Vaughn, perpetually underrated, Bill Dahlen, Frankie Frisch, Bobby Wallace, Al Simmons, Joe Cronin. The original Billy Hamilton, Sliden, Billy Hamilton, Home Run Baker's not on this list. So there's some pretty obvious glaring omissions there. And I guess they made the mistake of not talking to Lawrence Ritter and being featured in Glory of Their Times. So my complete statistical analysis of Justin Blackman's opinion and the original, remember some guys, will be linked from the show page. But there is my way too deep dive into not a random collection of names, but certainly a strange one, strange that it existed at all, and also sort of strange that it took the form that it did.
1: When I was in grad school, Ben, I uh, I was studying political theory, and I I thought about sports as a way to like understand representation and political engagement, and that was that was interesting to me. And I wrote a number of papers to to that effect, thinking that that would sort of be my area of academic focus. And I remember getting a, a paper back from a professor who I liked quite a bit, who read it and had good notes but also made note to me that perhaps what was more interesting to me was the sports rather than the political <laughs> theory and i didn't think that i would have a lot in common <laughs> with a supreme court justice but perhaps i've underestimated the the similarities that we share
0: did you do a long list of mariners for no reason in the middle
1: <laughs> no but i i think that in a paper on like the you know importance of the Northwestern football players attempt to unionize and what that shows us about our understanding of representation that I had like a half page long footnote on QBR as a dubious (laughs) metric. So I was perhaps well on my way, even if I didn't realize it, you know? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess I don't know what that means. I guess you pivoted to the job that that was right for you. Yeah. And Justice Blackman. he just stuck it out on the Supreme Court there, just yeah. muddling away. Who with, knows uh, what he might have job. done
1: if he had leaned into <laughs> his passions. You <laughs>
0: know. He could have amounted to something. <laughs> if he could have been the greatest lister of names of baseball players ever. <laughs> and he just had this, this one shot. He could yeah. have been the original David Roth. And instead, David coined that term first. Yep. All right. Well thanks to Ben for prompting that question and thanks to the late Justice Blackman for giving me a reason to do even more useless research on this episode.
1: And for other things too. You know, you did some other stuff that yeah. we appreciate, but you other know, stuff too. Yeah. This is the one that's relevant to our podcast <laughs> where we, you know, talk about water.
0: Yes. Well, having told you about the debut of the newest 6'8 major leaguer, Stephen Ridings, I would be remiss in not noting the passing of the best 6'8 major league baseball player of all time, J.R. Richard, the Astros legend who died on Wednesday. Like Ridings, he was a right-handed pitcher who touched triple digits and got great extension and released the ball close to the plate. Dusty Baker on Wednesday said, the thing about his size was the plate is 60 feet 6 inches from the mound, but J.R. is throwing from 50 feet. He was all legs you didn't have much time to make up your mind plus he was a little bit wild he was the toughest guy i ever faced and we faced him all the time and richard was really great at his peak and unfortunately his career was cut off at its peak he debuted in 1971 his last major league season was 1980 and he didn't really break out until 1976 or so when he was 26 years old but from 1977 his age 27 season through the first half of 1980 he was the most valuable pitcher in major league baseball. baseball, according to Fangraph's War. He started the All-Star Game in 1980, and at the break, he was leading the majors in strikeout rate, in ERA, in FIP, but shortly after the All-Star Game, he had a stroke that almost killed him, and he had been complaining of symptoms for some time, pain and numbness, dead arm, and a lot of people dismissed those symptoms and thought that he was making them up, or he was lazy, or he was jealous of Nolan Ryan. People in the media, people with the team, just Didn't really believe him Said nasty stuff about him And obviously there was something Seriously wrong with him It seems like he had Thoracic outlet syndrome Fortunately he survived But he never made it back to the majors And he went through some tough times But he managed to turn his life around Eventually became a minister Got involved in community work But he was one of the most Fearsome, intimidating pitchers of his era Or really of all time Another thing Baker said He was recounting one day When both of the catchers On his Dodgers came into the clubhouse on the day that the Dodgers were scheduled to face the Astros, and one had his arm in a sling and the other was in crutches. There was such a thing as J.R. itis, an incurable disease when you're afraid of JR, Baker said we had a team meeting and said somebody's going to catch there were a lot of guys who would take days off when jr was pitching and he's really one of the few guys from that era who if you look at his stats page it looks like he could be a contemporary pitcher looks like he could be pitching today just because he did miss so many bats by the standards of his day and he was so big and he threw so hard and i thought it was sort of appropriate when he threw out the first pitch to garrett cole before game one of the 2019 alcs because he was kind of garrett cole before Garrett Cole, except even bigger. Threw hard, had a nasty slider, struck out a ton of guys, and it was also appropriate because Garrett Cole broke his record in 2019 of the most strikeouts in a single season for an Astros pitcher 313 in 1979. Cole ended up with 326, and you could see the difference in eras there because Richard threw about 80 more innings in 1979 than Cole did 40 years later. But even though Richard was a great strikeout pitcher for his day, led the league in strikeout rate, his day had a lot lower league average strikeout rate than Cole's day did. A lot of people think that he would have gone on to make the Hall of Fame if he had stayed healthy. So farewell to a legend, J.R. Richard. Sadly, he died of complications from COVID, and on Wednesday, his friend and former teammate Enos Cabell was talking on the broadcast about how he tried to convince him to get the shot, didn't understand why he wouldn't. There's some sad irony in getting through everything he got through, surviving that near-death experience Experience with the stroke and all of the troubles that came later and then losing your life to this illness that perhaps could have been prevented. Don't want to turn a J.R. Richard remembrance into a vaccination sermon, but get your shots, people. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. R.O. Shapiro, Brian Good. John A., Ben Trombley, and Dan Laidman. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com group slash You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back with another episode a matter of hours after this one is posted. So stay tuned to your feed, and we will talk to you soon.
1: The last time I saw Richard was Detroit in 68, and he told me, Our romantics meet the same fade someday, cynical and drunk and boring someone in some dark cafe You laugh, he said, you think you're immune, go look at your eyes they're full of moon you like roses and kisses and pretty men to tell you all those pretty lies pretty lies When you're gonna